Hello and welcome back to Wes And, conversations about the films of Wes Anderson. This is episode seven. My name is Will, and I take no pleasure in reporting that today's episode is called Pod Rise King Cast. <laughs> because there's nothing better or more clever to do with this title for this purpose. Say it again. I think I said Podrise King Cast, but what I really meant to say was Podrise Castdom. But they're sort of equally nothing. There's really I, no superior version of it. I think I would have gone with um Moonrise Podcast. <laughs> Podcast no, Kingdom. I, I think I would have gone with Smugrise Poddom. Mm. Smug rise, buds, dumb. Sure. Smug rise, king buds. Yes, there we go. Okay. <laughs> this is smug rise, king buds, and uh, <laughs> as I said, I'm Will, and and that's Liz. Hi, Liz. Hey, Will. How are you, my sweet? I'm okay. How are you? I'm feeling a little bit ill this week, but oh, I don't no. think it'll affect me. I know. It's like now when mm. you say that, it's like, do you have the plague? Yes. Um, I think I'm probably fine, mm-hmm. um, but I do feel a little a little loopy, so we'll see how this goes. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I'm in low-key, like a little bit of a weird mood, too. Oh, good. I, I'm glad I sort we're of, both in weird moods. <laughs> yeah. I sort of don't know how I feel. Oh, no. It's uh, Sunday, October 25th, and uh, it's uh, late afternoon for me and, and more in the evening for you. We're, we're right on the cusp of uh, that time change, which is going to bring you one hour closer to me. Yeah. Uh, because we don't change our clocks here in Arizona. Um, when we're releasing this, it, it has just been Halloween. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, election is mere days away. Oh my god! <laughs> we're we're entering that that sort of like we're in the home stretch now, and and I sort of inv- ca- I sort of calendared this thinking like okay, we, if we start now, we will sort of neatly wrap it up before Thanksgiving, and mm-hmm. that for some reason just seemed like a good goalpost. And I wasn't thinking about the election and I wasn't thinking about how like we're going to have the experience that podcasts have of like recording something in advance and then releasing it after, you know, into basically releasing it into a new world in yeah. which it was not recorded. Um, so we're, we're going to find out what that's like. <laughs> want to go on the I record with, any, with anything? I do. I want to say that I saw a tweet a couple of days ago that just said 13 days. Yeah. And I hadn't, you know how sometimes you just sort of realize things, like you know them, mm-hmm. but you don't realize them until you see it framed in a certain way? Yes. Um, I It was like 8.30 and my adrenaline just mm-hmm. fired off because right. in my mind I had so many things to do. <laughs> right. You know, I had to prepare for Halloween. <laughs> right. And I've already voted, so. Yes. Halloween is a very um, nice welcome distraction from yeah. the other thing that's right around the corner. Um, so yeah, I 
I, I, that was what I do also want to say, I want to note, um, timing wise that you pointed out to me something about when we released Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yes. Could you want to tell them that since we're talking about timing stuff? Sure. Do do you want to backtrack even? Well, do you want to call, do you want to start old business? Oh yeah. Old business. Now that we're doing old business, yeah. do you want to backtrack even farther? Because I don't think we ever said on mic the Life You're Aquatic right. connection. Do you want to say that one? So um, the Life Aquatic episode dropped on October 12th. Yeah. Which was meaningful to me because that's Jeremy's birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the person that showed me the Life Aquatic. But my brother then pointed out to me that that's the day that Esteban dies. <laughs> yes. Because it's... <laughs> Seen on screen in the yeah. documentary film, right? They put that date on there. So that was like wild. Like the fact that that happened without... Two totally unplanned coincidences. Uh, one uh, bigger than the other. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, it, it it's October 2020. A, a, a movie... To, to, if you can believe it, every once in a while, a, a new movie still comes out. It doesn't mm-hmm. come out in the conventional way that we were used to, but it comes out in a way. And uh, a movie called The Witches uh, just came out, uh, which yep. is also a, a Roald Dahl uh, adaptation book to film. And it, it came out mere days before we put out our Fantastic Mr. Fox <laughs> episode of the podcast. Um, so, yeah, it just feels like uh, the stars and the planets aligning uh, in our favor uh, again and again. We will uh, not be waiting to release this episode until September 5th, though. No. Uh, is that the <laughs> right? That's the day of the storm, right? Yeah. Right. I have um, another Roll Doll old business. I have another Fantastic Mr. Fox old business. Okay. You, you go Do you ahead. Go first. No. Okay, I'll go ahead. Um, which is just that I wanted to say really briefly that something we I failed to we sort of talked about it in a different way, but I wanted to talk about race in the Fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which sounds silly, right? But I think it's worth mentioning that um, basically that whole cast is white. Yeah. Um, and then the, you know, they're animals or whatever. But I feel like this is the situation. That is worth mentioning, which is that when you write an, a when you make a movie out of something old timey, mm-hmm. where in particular the only people around or in power or were being written about were centered, white, yeah, you then get a sort of um, shitty get out of jail free card, right? When all of the characters in your movie are white, mm-hmm. <laughs> um. And that's sort of what happens here. There's not much to talk about because everyone is just white. And the reason everyone's white is because they are in the book or they're an animal. This is not my old business, but this is related. And it's not about race, but it is about nationality. I Mm -hmm. was reading an article, which uh, I just read this week um, post Fantastic Mr. Fox episode but I put it in the show notes for the Fantastic Mr. Fox episode, mostly to maybe get your eyes on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so uh, the author of this article, uh, Ethan something, um, uh, wrote um, just like as an aside, part of it says like, 
much has been written about the fact that all of the uh, protagonists in this film are American and all of the antagonists are British. <laughs> and it was it was written in such a way where it was like, th- this is obvious. Everybody talks about this. And, and I read it and I was like, oh, oh, I don't. I don't read a lot or listen to a lot of conversations about these films. And so that, I, that had never occurred to me, but uh, that didn't occur to me either. Yeah, I guess that's true as well. Um, my old business about fantastic Mr. Fox is a correction because mm. I said that the performances were recorded uh, on a farm in the English countryside Mm -hmm. And they were actually recorded on a farm in Connecticut. Oh, okay. I had heard about the farm and I just assumed that it was in England because the movie by and large was made in London. Mm -hmm. Um, But in fact, the And because that's where they were at his house, right? uh, At World... When 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 Wes was writing it? Gypsy House, right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the writing, animation, et cetera, lots of stuff uh, was done in London, but the actors uh, did not, in fact, uh, fly to England to uh, record their performances. Uh, they flew to Connecticut, where, mm-hmm. where the, uh, the friend, family friend or some friend's farm was uh, mm-hmm. on loan to them. Any other business, old, old or otherwise? I have three more pieces of old business. <laughs> Please. All right. You have the floor. Okay. The first is um, really short, which is that I, I've watched this before, but I watched it again today because it came out came up when I was watching things, which is probably a genre that I'm assuming you hate, which is um, the like honest trailers oh, God. series. Yeah, I would never I'm touch assuming that. you hate those. Yeah. Um, I watched the fantastic, I watched the Wes Anderson one because it's about all the Wes Anderson movies. Yes. And it was actually v- really useful because um, it put tropes together. And it, a lot of the tropes were things we've talked about, like mm-hmm. um, dead dogs and capers and stuff like that. Um, one thing that I learned from this video was I learned the name of the shot where they're facing at like an angle and then turn 90 degrees or 180 degrees. Yeah. It's called a whip pan. Yeah, I was going to say whip pan. And in fact, I think maybe I have. I, If you have, I did not know that. I did not fully grasp that that was like a term as opposed to the way instead of you just describing something. I've definitely heard the term (laughs) whip pan before. And I'm not like such an expert that I knew confidently that I knew Mm -hmm. that that was the term for that in particular but i feel like going back to maybe bottle rocket we talked mm. we were talking about that from the beginning yeah. and and if i didn't say whip pan then at least you were thinking it it's not yeah it's not a totally <laughs> new uh term for me i'm just bragging at this point it's not imp- <laughs> it's not important that i knew that or whether i said it or not um my brother gave me a correction on the darjeeling limited which neither of us could have well i could have known but you couldn't have which was a an anecdote that i had forgotten about which was he said i don't i don't know when you first saw the darjeeling limited but i know when you first tried to okay which was when my grandfather had died in 2007 Mm -hmm. um we were going to go to the midtown cinema with our cousin rex 
to see the Darjeeling Limited on like a Thursday night or something because we were home and eating at my cousin Judy's house. And my Aunt Sally wouldn't let us because it was a bad part of town. Oh, okay, sure. (laughs) Which I just want to say is bullshit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I'm not saying that there aren't violences that happen in Harrisburg. Um, The Midtown Cinema is in Midtown, which is like sort of like a gentrified bougie bougie area. Mm -hmm. But also like, even the violences that do happen in Harrisburg, we're fine. We mm-hmm. can go see a movie. <laughs> right. And also we were, I was 18. No, I was 19. My brother was soon to be 18 and my cousin was seven years older than me. So he was 25. Like mm-hmm. the fact that I remember looking at her and being like in my head, like, you're not my mother. <laughs> yes. What do you mean you're forbidding me from like, I felt like, and like we were in Harrisburg. So I wanted to be like in my house, you know? Yeah, and you were what, like 18? I had just turned 19, yeah. Right. So since you couldn't go out to the movies and you were stuck in the house, did you instead pass the time watching your cousin Rex try to beat (laughs) Zerg uh, in a computer game? (laughs) Oh my God. Anytime I mention my cousin Rex, people like lose their fucking minds. Mm -hmm. I don't realize that that's a weird name. It's not normal. His name's Rexford. That's not normal either. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. He's he's the he's the second, and he now has a mm-hmm. third. Yeah. So my uncle Mark is Mark Rexford. He's Rex, and then his son is Max. Um, uh, because they just they were either going to call him Ford or Max from like the the Rex, and then the M A from Mark, and they went with Max. I see. Um. Like but Max yeah, Fisher. I, I'm oh yes. I'm always it's always funny to me the jokes that people make. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's irresistible. I took the and bait. Every, every time I'm confused <laughs> as to why people are like making a hullabaloo. You saw it coming though. Okay, so are you ready for this is a real real old business and Ah uh, yes. It'll So it's a new misheard lyric. So I was uh listening to the song Jumper by Third Eye Blind mm-hmm. on Friday. And I was singing it in the kitchen. And uh, the second time the chorus came around, Kenny had sort of been hovering by the kitchen door and I could tell that he was hovering. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I sang it, he like stepped into my vision mm-hmm. and was like, that's not it. Yeah. Okay. So are you familiar with the song Jumper? I know I am. I just can't call it to mind right now so it it starts with the chorus which is i wish you would step back from that ledge my friend you could cut ties with all the lies that you've been living in yeah good congratulations thank you i thought it was capsize oh okay (laughs) which i think is a better line capsize for cut ties yeah (laughs) that's that's one of the most reasonable examples of this phenomenon that I've heard from you, I think. <laughs> because you could capsize with all the lies that you've been living in mm. makes it sound like the lies have weighted you down and now you, and you're a boat and now you're capsized. Oh, okay. Gotcha. It made perfect sense to me. Fair enough. Now, the best part about this was I posted about this on Instagram and my friend Jess messaged me and said, you have to tell me what song you misheard. Mm-hmm. And I said, do you know the song Jumper? And she said, yeah, I always thought it was capsize. And I recently learned hey. it was cut ties. 
Wow. So, so fuck everyone. It's very reasonable. Two people have thought this. That's great. But she said that before I even told her what it was, and then we were both screaming a little yeah. bit. So that's that's my all all my old business. <laughs> how 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 vindicating for you. I'm very happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very happy for you. So this week. We are up to Wes Anderson's seventh film mm-hmm. of ten total, nine released. Mm-hmm. You could say we're entering the home stretch. Yeah. I've talked about the uh, trilogy of trilogies that we're covering in nine episodes of the podcast. This is the start. The Force Awakens. This is, yes, that's right. This is the Force Awakens of. <laughs> that does not. That analogy only goes so far, and and not very far at all, in my opinion. Um, but that's but that's a topic for a different podcast. Um, na- a, na- namely, every single other podcast I've ever listened to. <laughs> here's one place, which is that it's a mostly, I would say, new cast in this movie. Yeah, there's some holdovers, but that's that's one of the main things that I do want to talk about when we talk about Moonrise Kingdom. A film that came out in summer 2012, mm-hmm. which for me means uh, right at the time when I was graduating or had just graduated from college. This mm-hmm. is um, the last movie was 09, right? Mm-hmm. So these next three movies are like the past decade, you know, the the tens or the teens, uh, mm-hmm. as it were. Uh, and so another way of thinking of this is as like the modern era mm-hmm. of, of the Wes Anderson <laughs> filmography. So um, I don't have a story about seeing this film. I'm sure I saw it in theaters, but I don't remember where or with whom. Um, if it was with one or both of my parents, maybe they remember and maybe they will remind me. Um, do Hi, you- Steve. Hi, Diane. Do you have a memory of seeing this movie for the first time? I do. I have a really specific memory of this one, um, which is that I saw it at Midtown Cinema. Finally, that Ah, the dream of seeing a Wes Anderson movie at Midtown Cinema has come to fruition. I saw it with Kenny. Mm. So this would have um, come out right before I went to grad school. Yep. Um, So Kenny came down and we watched it. And I remember deeply, deeply loving it. And Mm -hmm. I didn't watch it again until just now. (laughs) Oh, cool. I mean, I watched it like a month ago when I was preparing for this. So you've Um, seen it three times, but twice were for the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I, but I loved, I just loved it. And I remembered Mm -hmm. it. I did have the phenomena happen to me that happened with Bottle Rocket, which is that I, much like in Bottle Rocket, how it, my memory was that it mostly took place in the motel. Mm-hmm. My memory of this movie is that it mostly takes place in the wilderness. Right. And whenever they got caught, I was like, oh, there's still like a lot of fucking movie left. Yeah. That seems to <laughs> sort of repeatedly be happening with these movies, doesn't it? That it sort of mm-hmm. like has a premise or a conceit that takes over your whole memory of the movie. But in reality, it's actually only so much of the film. I'm talking about how in Rushmore, he gets kicked out of Rushmore and there's still Mm -hmm. like half the movie left. The Darjeeling Limited, they get kicked off the Darjeeling Limited and there's still a lot of movie left. Um, Yeah. 
and uh what was the uh and yeah in this in this movie it's like when they when they run away um and uh, dana was saying a similar thing that it's it's earlier than she remembered that they uh get caught uh yeah and uh brought back can i say something really quick uh, this is like like a really general thing that I, from a little feature that i saw with wes anderson mm-hmm. so uh let me I'm, let me click on the link really quick to see what this is called we'll put this in the show notes um but i watched a um I watched a, I guess it is like the like film four interview special about Wes Anderson on Moonrise Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And he says a lot of really uh, interesting things in this movie. But remember how last um, episode I said how um, we were talking about the difference between like um, that dude, that douchey dude. Who's that guy? The director? Quentin Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We were talking about like the difference between him and Wes Anderson and how like he's making movies that are like about movies and I was saying that like Wes Anderson is making movies that are books. Right. Um in this interview, he actually says, mm-hmm. "Oh, and I I had the thought I can't do a Wes Anderson voice who can." But he was like, "Oh, I had the thought that the movie should be like I, I, I had the one thought of- that yeah, the, I I created this character, uh Susie and uh uh <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 somewhere along the way, I decided she should read a lot of books, and, yeah. and, and uh, <laughs> she packs her suitcase with all her favorite books, and and that the movie should be like one of her books. Come and to life. I wrote, yeah, come to life. And I said, yeah, dude, we get it. Is what I wrote. <laughs> it, like he was you saying this. Say. Like this was the. It was like the first time he'd ever fucking thought of this. Like it like, was a dude, revelation to him, and it's like, okay, you, well, we kind of picked up on it before you did, like, apparently. <laughs> like forever ago like have you seen royal tenenbaums dude yeah but i also i that's totally fair and and very funny i also just want to quickly say in his defense the more interviews that i watch uh like the like the ones we're discussing and we have discussed Mm -hmm. the more i see like oh okay like he has to come up with a narrative for these interviews and yeah, there are some sure. yeah. interviews where he repeats the narrative and there are other interviews where he like deconstructs the narrative where uh-huh. he, he says like, well, what I've been saying is this, but is that really true? <laughs> and so <laughs> it's possible that that he just, you know, retroactively, you know, in order to talk about the writing of this film in interviews had to come up with this, you know, little story about how yeah. he had this revelation when really it was, you know, sort of a different process. Um, the the other thing I want to bring up from that interview, which I just couldn't handle because it was so funny, was he's telling this little anecdote where he's like, I'm thinking to myself, we can't have another yellow tent. Yes. But I'm like, well, I don't really have another color I like as much for this tent. <laughs> right. Yes. When, and, and, and when you say another yellow tent, uh, just to make it very clear in case yeah. it, it, it's already... Uh, crystal clear to anyone who has been paying attention but that that's a reference to the royal tenenbaums yeah and how scenes with a yellow tent uh feature prominently multiple times in the film and this is a movie about um you know boy scouts and Mm -hmm. and camping and and uh life in the wilderness and and there have there has have to be a lot of tents, and one in particular that's going to be like the main character's tent. 
And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was very, so that kind of feeds, okay, I will use that as sort of trying to use that as, tr as a transition to talking about like where we are now in the career yes. of Wes Anderson. And it is very interesting to hear him talk in interviews about this movie, about the his relationship to um, his fears that he might be repeating himself. Mm -hmm. And he's it, and the yellow tent is like a literal repetition of like we've seen this image already. It's um, like the same shape tent. Like yes. they could have used a differently shaped tent, but they mm -hmm. wanted because it's this certain aesthetic. It has to be this shape tent too. Yeah, and also maybe because it's this is we we've talked before about the other movies about like when does this take place? Well, it's sort of an interesting, um, wishy washy, ambiguous thing. This this movie tells you, I think it's the first thing it outright. tells you outright. It is the year is 1965. And it's okay. And we even know that it's September 2nd to September 5th. Right. For most of the movie. So another thing we could talk about is shape, but there's a million things mm -hmm. we can talk about. So maybe we will or maybe we won't talk about that. <laughs> um, but the, the, so so the, the the recap of the career narrative, I would say, is that to, to the extent that it is still useful to me to do this, you know, delineating them into trilogies uh, mm -hmm. narrative, the first three movies were like the meteoric rise. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the middle three movies were kind of a downfall, not necessarily creatively, because you obviously love The Life Aquatic and we both love Fantastic Mr. Fox um, and we both really enjoyed The Darjeeling Limited. But in terms of his career and the success of those movies. Yeah. And and you don't even have to look any farther from, you know, the the logos and the fanfare at the beginning of the movies. Right. We've, mm -hmm. we've already gone through this already. It was, you know, Columbia to start, and then he teams up with Disney, does three touchstone pictures, mm -hmm. and then the last two were 20th Century Fox, mm -hmm. and then uh, this is none of those. Mm -hmm. it, it focus features, right, is the way that it starts. And it's like, oh, okay, we're, we're, we're on a different part of the roller coaster now. We took the rise and the fall, and uh, now instead of, you know, the, one of the big giant studios um, being, uh, uh, you know, the makers or releasers of this film, I, I'm not sure if I remember exactly. I, I want to say Garden State is a focus feature. That sounds right. No, no. Garden State's a fox light, a, a, a searchlight. Search okay. Yeah, so because I remember at the time being like Searchlight Pictures is making everything I want. Right. Okay, so that's the thing. Is like even if I I'm I'm not so knowledgeable about these things that I can pull those titles right straight from my head, but I'm yeah. enough of a sort of paying attention film watcher to know that like when I see the A24 logo, I'm like, yes. "Oh, okay." I'm automatically going to be interested in what this is. If I'm, yeah, even know, if, if I don't like trailer. it, I'm going to be interested in it. Um, and and <laughs> A24 is sort of the right now contemporary example, but in the past it's been it focus features is like, oh, okay, I recognize that this is something. Mm -hmm. And Fox Searchlight is another one, even though you know that's. 
part of Fox and that's the big thing. And now that's part of Disney. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so now, so basically what I'm saying is um, two, two, you know, multiple things are happening. Two of them are, we, we are back to basics in the, in the way that Darjeeling limited, I called it sort of a recovery from life aquatic, but yeah. it, it was still in India. It was still on a moving train. There was, there was still a lot of um, ambitious stuff going on. This is even more, this is more so like back to basics, much lower budget, um, scaled down sort of, sort of a film. Um, and another thing that's going on is it's, it's film number seven mm-hmm. and, uh, he, he's, he's Wes Anderson and he has his, his stuff, right? He mm-hmm. has his things that he's fixated on and we're we're now if we weren't already here some people would argue we've been here for a while but mm-hmm. but certain certainly now i think we have to acknowledge that we're in a place where we have to reconcile with the idea that maybe that there's a finite number of things that are the wes anderson uh fixations Mm-hmm. And 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 maybe now they're being sort of recycled, mm-hmm. and maybe and maybe that's a sign of if it's not if it's not a sign of some kind of waning quality, uh, it's at least a sign of like the the reasons for like different perceptions of the movies. Mm-hmm. It's it's like okay you. Uh, whether it's true or not, you can see why somebody would accuse him of just recycling materials, doing the same things over and over again. We've already, we've already seen it. Like I've, Mm -hmm. I've already seen all the Wes Anderson films that I'm going to see because he, you know, everyone is like, is like the last and, and the well, uh, is sort of, is sort of shallow, is sort of drained. Yeah. Now, now is it, since that sounds so negative, now's a good time to say, I love this movie. I think it's great. I fucking love this movie. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this movie also does, um, I think the thing that, so you just said a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I think the new thing that this movie does is explores themes and storytelling that the other movies it definitely has some of the same thing there are some dead parents mm-hmm. there's some disaffected people yep um but it explores i think a plot and a storyline that is not explored in a lot of his other movies and in right. a way that is like both um meaningful and like deeply satisfying for me mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so we got a couple of sort of dangling threads we could pick up here. One is I mentioned shape, and mm-hmm. the other is you mentioned the new cast members. So um, why don't we continue there um, yeah. by saying one of the ways that you know, as much as there might be familiarity going on, one of the ways that uh, the the new the newer films can be sort of you know, can refresh 
the the process or the product um, mm-hmm. and and try to keep it new and interesting and exciting is is the new cast of characters mm-hmm. so this movie is almost all new people yes the main holdovers are Bill Moore, Bill Murray of course yes and then Jason Sh- Jason Schwartzman right those are like the two. I mean, like you can, it, and then if we if we if we wanted to uh, identify anyone else who is a holdover, we have to go to a cut so deep that mm-hmm. it that it is Eric Anderson. Yes. Who? Yes. You could blink and you wouldn't know that he's in the movie, um, mm-hmm. and most people would not know who he is, even if they didn't blink. It's like. He- you hear him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Edward Norton is in this movie. Uh, yes. Francis McDormand is in the movie. Tilda Swinton is in the movie. Uh, Bruce Willis, of all people, is in this Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. And Harvey Keitel is in this movie. And Bob Balaban is the narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are all new people to the Wes Anderson filmography. Now, uh, we it get intri- and of course the kids are brand new, not just to Wes Anderson, but brand new to film. And now introducing, and yes, as they exactly, say. yes. And their names are, and I'm going to try to remember this: Kara, uh, something with an H, and Jared Gilman, Haywood, Haywood. Yeah. Is it Hayward? Hay- Hayward. 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 Kara right. Hayward and Jared uh, Gilman. Mm-hmm. So um, all of these people are sort of with us from the beginning. And so is Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. And then Jason Schwartzman, who we know, is doesn't appear until towards the end. Yeah. And I would go as far as to say that his part is is almost like a cameo. Like, it's, yes. it's larger than a typical cameo. Mm-hmm. And it's technically more than a one-scene performance, but it's like a one-section-of-the-film performance, you know? It's, like, it's in, almost the equivalent of Angelica Houston in... Um, Darjeeling. Darjeeling. Lemon. Yes, that's an excellent comparison. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so Anytime you say that you're glad I've brought something up, I just want to let you know I feel, like, really smart. <laughs> Yeah. And good about myself. That's nice. That's that's very <laughs> nice. Um, so do you want to talk about any of these performances in particular or any of these cast members? Yeah, I um I wanted to mention Ed Norton because when I had seen this, I had seen him in very limited things. Mm-hmm. Um the thing that I had seen him in most memorably was American History X. Oh, I've never seen that. It's I just assumed like, you were going to say Fight Club. Okay, and then the second thing was Fight Club. Right. But both things, he's like, because he's like a littler dude, right? Yes. Like, part of the deal with Fight Club of his casting is that he's like so much physically smaller than Brad Pitt. Right. Um. But in both movies, like, both movies are like wildly, wildly violent. Yes. So whenever I saw him in this, I was like, what the fuck is he doing in here? Right. And that's also, that's one of the reasons why um, 
it didn't last long, unfortunately, but they cast him as the Incredible Hulk, right? Is because mm-hmm. he's this guy who we know based on the roles we've seen him play that he's kind of a guy who looks like he should be timid and mild-mannered, but we've seen him do some shit that implies that he's got this like well of uh, uh, scary stuff uh, inside of him. Yes. Um, and uh, that there's a very fun... So I watched some videos and I think uh, part of the trend that I saw on YouTube watching supplemental materials for this movie is, oh, okay, uh, this movie came out in 2012 and it came out without the force of one of the huge studios behind it. So mm-hmm. I think that explains why there's like a bunch of, there's like a bunch of cutesy stuff um, mm-hmm. that was made to promote this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one thing I watched, which I recommend, which I'll put in the show notes, which I think is so funny, is uh, ostensibly it is Bill Murray giving you a tour of the set. <laughs> did yes. you watch this? It's, it's so funny. Yes, He's I did. very funny. So he he just lists some cast members and says a little bit about each of them. And mm-hmm. he says, Edward Norton is in the movie, usually plays psychos. <laughs> He's kind of playing against type here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm glad I watched that video for that reason, because it seems so obvious now, but I would not have independently come up with that thought. It's like, oh, yeah, that's um, that is like uh, against type for for Edward Norton to play to play this like ultimate Boy Scout. He also um, he also says something about Bruce Willis, which I remember thinking, oh, Will's going to like this. He, sa- I f- he says, he, uh, can I say it or did you want Please, to- I don't remember it exactly, so you just say it. He say, says, Bruce Willis is in the movie, he plays a policeman, uh, t- totally typecast, I guess. He, <laughs> I, th- I think that's what he says. Yeah, and the way that he says it, it almost like it's almost like he's saying, Bruce Willis is in it for some reason. <laughs> there there might be a little bit of that subtext there but um what did you want to say about Edward Norton? Uh Oh, j- just that like I wanted to bring him up because like the when I I I love him in this movie, but yeah, he's so opposite of what I was used to him in and I feel like he hasn't actually always played those characters exactly, right. but like those were the only two things I had seen him in. Yeah. Um d- despite I, knowing Fight Club and uh, and the Incredible Hulk. When I heard Edward Norton will be in the next Wes Anderson movie, I thought that's great. That's a natural fit, um, mm-hmm. perfect. And then hearing Bruce Willis was in the next Wes Anderson movie, I was like, "What the heck? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, how's that going to work?" Mm-hmm. Um, turns out it works beautifully, and I love Bruce Willis in this movie. He's so good in this movie. And and I saw another like um promo-y thing. I don't know if you watched this one where Bruce Willis was like, I've seen all of Wes Anderson's movies yes. and I love them. And right. so I was like, okay, so this is part of the reason why you're yeah. in this movie because you are a fan. I saw that too. So I I, I you you know uh and and everybody knows by now. I listen to a lot of podcasts. 
Um, I listen to, you know, I consume a lot of stuff like about pop culture and about movies and TV and stuff. So um, Bruce Willis is one of those people who like he he has a reputation, right? Mm-hmm. And that reputation is so um, fixed and, and widespread that there is a public knowledge of it. That it, it it's 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 known to any you know the layman any one of us, um, and the reputation is that he's very lazy and that he's very ornery and and he's a nightmare to work with. Um, and then also, I can't remember where I I can't remember where I heard this, but I'm sure somewhere I heard that there's sort of a nuance um, behind the reputation which is that he's a nightmare to work with unless he respects the person he's working for. <laughs> and and then he's great. And so like the, yeah. the, whoever said this was really like subtweeting or not even subtweeting but like calling out Kevin Smith cuz cuz Kevin mm. Smith is it, it, Kevin Smith made a movie called Cop Out which he didn't write but he directed uh, starring uh comedy starring Bruce Willis and uh, Tracy Morgan, um, mm-hmm. not a popular or successful film, and uh, in the I've way never even heard of it. in the way that Kevin Smith does, he sort of you know rode that to like okay, I've got I've got a lot of stories that I can tell, and Kevin Smith basically Kevin Smith in addition to uh, being a longtime podcaster. He Mm -hmm. does these like Q&A specials that are almost like comedy specials, but like they're not Mm -hmm. there. It's not stand up exactly, but it's like stand up. And uh, there's one post cop out where he talks a lot about the making of cop out and and how uh, what a horrible experience he had working (laughs) with Bruce Willis. And it's Mm -hmm. just it's just for anyone to see and it's for entertainment purposes that he's just telling these stories. It's like, okay, obviously Kevin Smith doesn't care anymore about like he, he makes his own stuff and he does it his way and he has Mm -hmm. his friends or whatever. So wherever I heard this, I heard from this person like, okay, like um, Bruce Willis like takes on a job. He goes on to a set. He meets the director. He asks some kind of a question about like, oh, what such and such thing are we using to shoot this? And that question is like a test of like <laughs> of like whether they know their shit, like on this like uh-huh. technical level. And some people fail the test because they're not that kind of filmmaker. Uh-huh. And, and some people pass the test. And, yeah. and um, I don't know what the experience was like. Obviously, this is the one and only time Bruce Willis has worked with Wes Anderson or Wes mm-hmm. Anderson has worked with Bruce Willis. But um, it, it seems to me like Bruce Willis is trying in this movie. Like he doesn't. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously it's it's it has that Wes Anderson, you know, deadpan quality, which can be read as like, oh, that seems like it would be really easy to do. You just have this flat affect. Anyone could do that. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, beside, despite that, or or in addition to that, um, Bruce Willis seems like he's really r- giving a performance in this movie. He's not phoning. His it character's in. so like 
earnest yes. and um, tender right. and is supposed to be in this position of power, but is like so vulnerable from the start. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, vulnerable is a, is a great word for it. Yeah. And I and I think Bruce Willis, if I if I am to pick a favorite performance, mine is Bruce Willis. And mm. that's mainly because my expectations were so different from what uh, my um, reaction to to mm-hmm. the film and the performances were. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just I just think he does a beautiful job, but so does basically everyone. Um, yeah. I have another person who I want to talk about in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. But before I do that, I don't want to steamroll you. Did you have a favorite or a, an additional comment to make? Yeah, I, I do want to say that, I mean, I brought up Ed Norton and I think Ed Norton is my favorite performance mm-hmm. of the adults, but I feel like mm. I'm constantly drawing a line here ah. um, between the adults and the children. Right. Um. Like, I can't even pick, like, a favorite scene where mm-hmm. I'm not splitting it because right. um, this is a movie where, much like with the Fantastic Mr. Fox, I feel like there are sections that just feel so different and unique from one another. Not, like, out of place in the film, but mm-hmm. just, like, really stand out in their own way. Right. Um, I, I really got to give it to both those kids, though, yeah. which I feel like just convey a huge depth of emotion and... Right. um and uh storytelling and um like truthfulness i even want to say Mm -hmm. authenticity Um, but yeah yeah authenticity Mm -hmm. um but ed norton too um i just love the way i love his um demeanor and i love his little um uh uh journals that he does and the way that he um like the way that he just is like makes me laugh, I think, mm-hmm. most, which is maybe why I like him so much. Right. I do also just want to say that Bill Murray is like only – his role is throughout this movie, but mm-hmm. it's he actually doesn't have that many lines. Yes. But almost every line that he delivers just makes me actually laugh. Right. <laughs> the um, So I just want to say in terms of power rankings, like uh, the, the sort of the way that I talked about – uh, the performances in the Royal Tenenbaums and like who who was like the linchpin um, mm-hmm. who, who who had the most on their shoulders. Yeah. In, in terms of who has to be perfect in their performance in order for the whole movie to stand uh, and mm-hmm. work, it's, it's number one, Sam. Number yes. two, Susie. Yes. And then I would say number three, Bruce Willis. Number four, Edward Norton. Number mm-hmm. five, Francis McDormand. Mm-hmm. And then like six, Bill Murray, and then everyone else. Because like Tilda Swinton and Jason Schwartzman are are and even Harvey Keitel are very yeah. good, but like they don't have like parts mm-hmm. of, of like fleshed out characters. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, have- I do want to say really quick. <laughs> Yeah, because I, I know you'll love this. That mm-hmm. Tilda Swinton's character's name is Social, Social Services. Services, and thank God you brought this up because <laughs> every week I fail to point out something that I love about Wes Anderson movies, which mm-hmm. is that in the credits, every single performer has as and then the name of their character. 
mm-hmm. which is which is unique and rare. It, it like you you very rarely see that unless it's you know that one special performance, like you know, and, and Patrick Stewart as Professor mm-hmm. X or something like that. But it's somehow it it's it's somehow in keeping with the whole Wes Anderson vibe uh and and the aesthetic of these movies that every single person gets that as it feel it makes yeah. it feel more like a play or something like that and and because Tilda Swinton's character is called social services it says Tilda Swinton as social services which just <laughs> just makes it funnier um the the other person i wanted to talk about in the movie in a different way is bill murray mm-hmm. because uh, here, so, so my take, which I just came up with after watching this movie <laughs> last night, I've oh, sort of not been, just now, <laughs> not just now. I've sort of been ruminating on this for the last twenty four hours. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Bill Murray is is uh, very good in the movie. Mm-hmm. There is there is nothing I can fault him for uh, for mm-hmm. his performance in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. however, despite that, for other different reasons, I low key wish that Bill Murray were not in this movie. Is it because, is it because he feels like, um, he's just sort of like, is it because it feels like he's Bill Murray playing Bill Murray in this movie and everyone else because they're sort of new is this sort of holistic unit and Bill Murray feels like he's like, Hey, you're, you're almost saying what I'm thinking. Okay. Uh, which is, um, everyone else is new around him. It feels almost like an obligation at this point that Mm -hmm. Bill Murray must be in every Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. And I think perhaps it would be to the film's benefit if the cast we meet at the beginning of this film is entirely new people. Yeah, for sure. And then later when we meet Jason Schwartzman as Cousin Ben, Mm -hmm. that's like the one fun cameo where Mm -hmm. it's like a nod to like, Oh, you love these two kids. This is a movie about these two kids. Wes Anderson discovered these two kids we've never seen before. Remember Rushmore? Uh, like Jason yeah. Schwartzman is here and he's here to sort of like pass the baton sort of to these two mm-hmm. new great kid performers. Um, that to me would be more powerful in that uh, uh, and more fun in that mm-hmm. sort of meta way. Were it not for the fact that Bill Murray is there from the beginning, and yeah. we've seen him every single time since Rushmore, uh, it's it's a lot to this movie's benefit. Um, how many new performers who we haven't seen before in Wes Anderson films are yeah, here sure. are here are here to play, and I mm-hmm. I feel like that is slightly undercut by the presence mm-hmm. of Bill Murray. I want to say too. Um, I know we've said like everyone's new or whatever, which is true, (laughs) but it is worth mentioning specifically that this is the first movie with absolutely no Wilson brothers in it. 
yes, or involved of, or writing or acting or anything. Right. Did you did you read this on IMDb or or did you come to this yourself? Oh, I came to this myself. I read on the it, it's in the trivia for on IMDb for this movie. This is the oh. first uh this is the first Wes Anderson movie uh without any involvement from Owen Wilson. <laughs> which is he just didn't a tr- even go to see it. Just a true fact. Can we talk about um color? Yeah, absolutely. So I know I joked about that yellow tent, but if this if the last move if the life aquatics colors are blue and yellow and red. Mm-hmm. And the and the Fantastic Mr. Fox's colors are orange. Mm-hmm. This movie's color is yellow. Mm-hmm. And the whole movie is tinted yellow until the very end when it's completely blue. Right. Um, but it's so yellow that it's wasn't actually that yellow when they were filming it, which I think is obvious, but mm-hmm. It's very obvious that they've treated it and I think that it's I think that this is a really interesting choice for two reasons. The first is that I think he's clearly trying to reach towards an aesthetic of that time period which I think that that time period tinted everything in that sort of yellowy color. Mm-hmm. Um but I think it's also really interesting because of when it takes place. Mm-hmm. Um because like we discussed, we do actually have a time of year very specifically. Right. Um, which is the very first week of September. Mm-hmm. And I always think of the first week of September as everything is still green, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing yet has started to change. And yet it's not as green as it was in June. Yeah. It's starting to look almost like a little bit burnt or like it's used up its its spark and it's starting to look a little um, like worn down or mm-hmm. dulled. And I feel like this movie like perfectly encapsulates that feeling of like, it's not exactly summer anymore, mm-hmm. but it's not not summer either. Right. <laughs> um, and then I also wanted to talk about um, yellow in terms and pink, because what what dress and coat does Susie wear but that tea berry pink mm-hmm. that I mentioned in the Royal Tenenbaums and that shows up in the bakery with the fantastic Mr. Fox and we know is going to be the big color in Grand Budapest. Next week. Or one of the big colors. And I wanted to bring it up because, do you remember what color dress she's wearing in the last scene of the film? Uh, No, I guess I don't. She's wearing yellow. Oh, yeah, okay. And I mean, this is sort of a, you know, a spoilers, I guess. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think it's one of the few times that Wes Anderson, and maybe he didn't do this on purpose, but, you know... She's pink, and that pink stands out from everything else in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, even the khaki scout uniforms aren't yellow, but they're sort of brown, and everything's sort of earth tones. And um, at the end, she sort of finally fits in with the color scheme of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, like, a sort of color resolution there. Yeah. Um, which I think is really um, lovely. Yeah. And I wanted to bring it up. Right. Yes, I think that's very astutely observed. Also, also, can we talk about how the narrator just looks like a Connecticut version of Steve Zissou? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. 
True. If we're talking about costumes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's so weird, right? It's weird. The narrator's weird, right? Not in a bad way. Sure. I, I, I would say weird in a very good way that I, I think yeah. is an asset and one of the strengths of this movie. Um, so that's a perfect jumping off point for because you you were when you're talking about color, you're talking about, you know, the visual language of this movie. Mm-hmm. And then you also brought up the narrator, which is going to be helpful for me in this transition to bringing it to the conversation of the the favorite shot or or favorite image or favorite oh camera move or or, yeah. or something like that. So so I know what I have to say. Do you have uh, any any in particular you want to offer favorite up? shots? Yeah. Yeah, I have like three million favorite shots. Yeah. Um, I took like more screenshots for this movie than I ever have, but I do have one. I do have one that's a particular favorite. But let me go through very briefly the ones that didn't make the cut. So very obviously, there's her on the lighthouse with her binoculars. Yeah. Beautiful, perfect Wes Anderson symmetry going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, doing things that he doing what he likes to do, which is like you know putting somebody sort of at a height or at a distance. Um. There's also the very perfect shot of them in the field meeting for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, meeting again for the first time, right. which has a windmill, I guess, perfectly centered in the shot mm. in the far distance. Mm-hmm. And there's the scene of, well, no, I'll, that, I'll count that as a scene. There's the shot of them that's the slow-mo as they're walking out of the church. Mm-hmm. Which I think is like just a perfect use of my, maybe my favorite use of slow motion outside of the cigarette in Life Aquatic mm. um, that Wes Anderson ever does because it just elevates these two characters where they look like fucking adults. Like I feel like that's the point is like the whole time they just want to be taken seriously and I feel like this shot is them being taken seriously. Mm-hmm. But my favorite shot, hands down, no question, is the shot of Bill Murray pulling the tent off of them on the beach. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because you go from being, first off, you get a hilarious image of Bill Murray angrily running up the beach, Mm -hmm. which is hilarious because he's not the most graceful dude. Right. (laughs) But you get this sort of interior shot that becomes exterior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the way, and then when it's revealed... It's like them just clinging to each other. Yeah. Bill Murray holding the whole tent above his head, which I feel like as modern day people, we wouldn't necessarily expect because we're used to tents having bottoms. Mm-hmm. And then Francis McDormand's in the water. Bruce Willis is on the left, closer in front of the luggage, looking up into the sky mm-hmm. on the left. On the right side, the three boys are in the rowboat, yeah. which is which Ed Norton's holding the rope to as if it's going to like float away, even though it's clearly on the shore. Right. <laughs> and then the three scouts that are there. The deputies, yes. Yes. It is with then the sort of sloping um, edges of the cove. Right. It's hands down my favorite shot. Yeah. I love it so much. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah, there is like a triumph of composition to that shot. And it's, it's uh, indelible. Um, there were two camera uh, things, composition mm-hmm. things 
um, that uh, stood out to me on this viewing. And one sort of took my breath away. And the other one was more of a quiet, subtle thing. And Mm -hmm. I'll start with the quiet, subtle thing was um, this is more than one shot and and more than one scene, but I'll I'll hone in on one particular moment. Um, When uh, the the switchboard scenes and when when there is split screen screen. for the two sides of the call. Um, Uh and, And in particular, where I think that shines is when the call with social services ends, Uh but then the scene doesn't end for Uh like a little while. It just Mm -hmm. lingers on, on both sides. So like, it's like, it's very conventional and, and, you know, seen very often to use split screen when, you know, characters are on the phone and you see both sides uh-huh. at once. But the fact that the call is in, is is completed, and mm-hmm. then and then it just goes on. Like there's like the the visual, like the cinematic logic is like okay, these these two settings are in split screen because they're communicating with with each other on the phone call. It's as if the phone call yeah. is making the split screen possible. And then the call's done and the split screen goes on and there's no dialogue. No, nobody on either side says anything. The scene is over. It yeah. just lingers. And we see, for example, <laughs> we see Tilda Swinton kind of collect herself and then just pick up the phone to make the next call. And, and yeah. simultaneously, we're seeing, you know, our heroes, we're seeing Bruce Willis and Edward Norton and the switchboard operator. Um just kind of sit in their kind of hopelessness and Mm -hmm. and it's this wonderful juxtaposition of like that lady's just doing her job and she has she probably has to deal with this you know times a hundred and like Mm -hmm. and and on the other side it's like well on this island like this is these these people's whole lives is they just they're dealing with this one situation um yeah the the less subtle more breathtaking uh, moment. It, uh, this I'll I'll do another sort of broad stroke and then honing into something more specific. The broad stroke yeah. version is just anytime Bob Balaban is doing his job as narrator. It, yes. it it is like a smorgasbord of beautiful compositions of gorgeous scenery. Right. It's like mm-hmm. he he speaks in these like short sentences and. Each sentence gets its own amazing shot. And that's like by design. Um, yeah. But there's one shot that with him that is pretty long. And uh, it's the scene um, sort of on the shore um, mm-hmm. where the storm is brewing and he has all his weather equipment. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's it's night. I, I I think later he says the time, and it's like four thirty a.m. or something. Mm-hmm. And it's very dark, but also there's this pinkness in the sky, which is beautiful. It's like mm-hmm. magic hour sort of colors. Um, and uh, he's very dark until he walks up to the camera and turns on a light, and then he's very well lit. Yes. Um, so so that is kind of, 
you know, that is special in an in an unsubtle way. And yeah. then also uh, he sort of moves uh, over here to the right beyond the frame and the camera pans slowly and follows him. Mm-hmm. And he, he narrates more and he does more with the weather equipment. Um, and then he exits the shot, but the shot goes on and then the boat comes mm-hmm. in in the background, right? And you're like, yeah. oh, okay, oh, holy crap! This is <laughs> this is not only a narrator scene. It's all it's it's this uh, sort of brilliant blending of the two, right? Of, yeah. of him yeah. him telling the story in the context, and then the story sort of like creeps in, and it's also a sort of like how they, how did they do that sort of moment? Because it's mm-hmm. like, we were looking at the water all along. Like, we were just over here. And then we only sort of went over here to the right. And then he exits the frame. And then the boat enters the frame. And it's like, how mm-hmm. did we not see that before? You know? Um, so that's that's my favorite shot in the movie. That's a really good one, too. Yeah. I just love all the little, you know, things with framing and, and composition and things exiting and things entering and just just the you know things that things that make you think about how uh you know finely tuned uh it had it had to be i think about that this isn't this is like a shot too but the scene when they're on the top of the mount where the kids are on the top of the mountain and it's doing a full like 360 uh-huh. and um Susie's like sort of with her legs to the side um looking out with her binoculars and um uh oh what is his name the boy Sam um Sam is like where god damn it where is it and then he's like made them like hot dogs for lunch mm-hmm. and that's where it ends that that shot is also just so beautiful because we get the we get this like sort of just the grandeur of nature Mm -hmm. but also get all those little tiny little moments of them like camping and then it it ends with a very wes anderson thing which is um a table setting yes well can we talk about like what this movie like the themes of this movie and and how they're important to me sure (laughs) so i think part of the reason i love this movie so much um is because I'm like, as you know, Will, my friend Will. Yeah. And maybe some of our listeners have picked up on this. I'm like um, really interested in um, affection and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I'm very much interested in investigating places where, um, because I feel like we could all do with a little bit more more affection and intimacy Mm -hmm. and i feel like very often we're cut off from that Mm -hmm. because we have very strict rules about who is allowed to be affectionate and intimate with one another Mm -hmm. um which is to say like it's mostly dedicated like it's mostly acceptable within romantic relationships and immediate family members Mm -hmm. um and i love this story because it Oh, and I also want to say that when I was a kid, my mom said something very important to me um, when I was maybe 10 or 11, 
which she, this was the sort of thing she said to me and I realize now she was trying to tell me something and she did. Um, but at the time I thought she was just relaying information, um, which was that she said to me that she had read about a study where they had looked at the brains of children and teenagers and they found that children and teenagers feel love and heartbreak and all those emotions as much as adults do, mm-hmm. even if it's like a breakup that has been from like a two-month relationship as opposed to like an adult dealing with like a 20-year marriage right. ending in divorce or something like that. And I realize now what she was saying to me was just because these events that you're experiencing are maybe more temporal or temporal, temporary than – you know, things that adults are experiencing, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that your emotions surrounding them are any less valid. Right. Which was so important for me to hear, mm-hmm. but also important and, and also has remained important to me as a parent too, right? Because when Elliot starts weeping because he didn't do homework at his daycare, homework is um, worksheets he does while he's at daycare mm-hmm. <laughs> that I think she calls homework because he takes them home. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say they're called that to prepare him for the concept and the re- no, the real homework to come. I think it's a she she's not a, a native speaker ah. and I think that it's a sort of lost in translation thing. I see. Um but it's really he's going to get really confused when he goes to <laughs> Yes. goes to school. But yeah, like he he burst into tears the other day and it's not because he's dumb and he doesn't understand that it's not important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love this movie because um, this movie is letting these two children have this relationship that I think is really valid and important. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allows them to be intimate. Like part of the reason I love that scene, so that shot so much where Bill Murray pulls off the tent Um is because, like, it's not like they're out there being, I don't know, uh, not scandals, rascals or something. <laughs> they're they're just truly, like, enjoying the existence of one another. Yeah. And as Kenny pointed out to me um, when I was talking to him about this, they're children that don't have very much agency, but also... They're children that are both dealing with, you know, real problems. Susie seems to be legitimately depressed. Right. <laughs> um, Sam has a home life that is non-existent in the sense that he's in foster care. He says, he says devastatingly, they're really starting to feel like a family to me. When right. we already know that they've been like, ah, we can't really deal yeah. with him right now. Right. And... So for them to come together, the only way that they can be together is to run away. And yet how also, how dare these adults try to deny them this friendship and, you know, or romantic relationship when they have found each other. You know, they found mm-hmm. somebody that actually has some empathy for their situation. Um, and what Kenny was saying, too, is like by creating these really strict borders even around like a romantic relationship like this Mm -hmm. 
we then deny ourselves the ability to have those relationships in non-romantic settings. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just, I, this, that, the representation of that in this movie is, I think, so well done and really elevates this movie to me, like, beyond, like, a Wes Anderson movie, quote unquote, right? Yes. When you said a moment ago, for example, Susie seems legitimately depressed, you just reminded me that. Uh, one thing I wanted to say about this movie, we have a tendency because we're rewatching most of these movies and we have a tendency yeah. to talk about like, oh, I forgot it was like this um, mm-hmm. or, you know, I had to be reminded of, that this happens. My experience this time was um, I, I had sort of forgotten how badly behaved the both of them are from from yes. what we see of their lives. Um, Mm -hmm. this is a good moment to say, I just remembered, um, again, uh, this is not subtle. What I'm trying, when I, when I said about the narrator stuff and the shot composition, that that's, that, that is not subtle. I'm trying to apologize for the fact that my favorite parts of these movies feel like they are a dumb guy's favorite parts. Um, because they're, but you know what? I don't think so because I feel like you could take so many things away from this movie sure. and they're obvious when you're looking for them. Yes. But w- like what I'm going to say now is um, it, it, it's not subtle, but the, the best part of this movie is is the montage of letters. <laughs> yes, uh, it's so good. The, the, the Dear Sam, Dear Susie, the way that they never finish, the way they always mm-hmm. cut each other off, and the the way that you the way that you start out seeing what they're you know writing you see you see them in the act of writing and then as mm-hmm. it goes on there becomes this juxtaposition between what you're actually seeing and what you're hearing them having written about and the way that you see mm-hmm. Sam like getting into a fight with another kid in the foster home not foster home but whatever care facility he's in um, it's a foster home. Yeah, it's oh, called it, like that, the whatever yeah. home foster home for boys. I right, think it's called. Right, fair enough. Um, and the way that you see Susie just screaming at her family at the dinner table, you know, yeah. while you're, you know, all you hear is like, you know, the the dictation of the the letters that they wrote to each other. Um, that that is there's like something on fire at one point. Right. Oh, oh, yeah. He he doesn't. He <laughs> slept walked starting a fire. Right. Yeah. And Dana pointed out that. There's something written in stones that I didn't even, I've never noticed it, but mm-hmm. Dana noticed it. Um, and I guess maybe it's sort of written the same way that Moonrise Kingdom is written on the beach at the end of the film. But it, mm-hmm. oh, Dana, do you remember what it said? What? what in the movie, when, in, when he, he slept walked starting a fire and you were like, oh, I never noticed it says that in the background. Do you remember oh, what it, it said? Your God. Your God will punish you. It was something like, where is your God now? Yeah. Or, um, so it, I, I forget what it was, but it's, it's, I went on a tangent to talk about how good that letter writing part of the movie is. But the point I was trying to make before is, um, I, I had forgotten since the last time I saw this movie, how, how, uh, 
uh, troubled, they are actually, you know, the characters keep repeating that he's emotionally disturbed, right? And that's kind of like yeah, and you and you and you sort of like are like fuck you. He's like this tiny boy. He's fine, right? It's sort of easy to um, it's it's sort of e- the the funny thing is that the the characters kind of defy uh, the like in my memory of this movie, I sort of defaulted to remembering just like the stereotype version of those characters. Mm-hmm. Like I just remembered like they're both outcasts. He's like a big nerd, right? He's really, mm-hmm. he's so good at camping and he's, he's very, he's the kind of kid who would get beat up. Um, and she is like the bookworm. She's an outcast because she's very serious and she's very smart. And it's like, okay, those things are true, but also like, she quote unquote goes berserk and he mm-hmm. like started a fire in his sleep. And like, th- like those, those are outside of the typical stereotypes of just like two yes. outcasts who fall in love. They're two outcasts who are also actually have some like real problems and have behaved very badly in, in the, yeah. in the past. And that is sort of what my memory sort of glossed over in remembering mm-hmm. this movie prior to rewatching it for this. Yeah, I found that scene by the way. It's it it's sort of obfuscated a little bit because the doghouse is on fire. Um it's a doghouse by the way that's on fire though. He's with the dog, so that it ah. specifically keeps our dead dog count where it is. Yes. Um but it says prepare to meet thy god. It says something lives, I'm assuming Jesus, and then it says it says like something like be very holy something something. God is God is love. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'll have to take a second look at that myself. Because that sort of sounds like something that would be r- written there by, like, the administration. But pre- ex- yeah. prepare to meet thy God. Yeah, that's different. Okay, never mind. <laughs> um, you brought up dead dogs. Do you want to just do the obligatory update of the dead dogs and caper counts? Snoopy. Yeah, Snoopy dies. Snoopy doesn't make it, guys. Poor Snoopy. Was he a good dog? Who can say? But he didn't deserve to but die. But he didn't deserve to die. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just a good... I, I think... My my feeling is... I, I hate to see a dog die, um, you know, in, in a movie, in fiction. Um, my feeling is that dialogue is so good that... Uh, the. <laughs> It earns the the death of Snoopy, or just um, justifies you, it. I guess I meant to say. Did you read about um, the dead dog part, like part on Wikipedia? Uh, no, I didn't look at Wikipedia. In, so it's called. It says controversy because some people thought that the like kids scenes were too much or whatever or children's sexuality. Blah, blah blah. Okay, so it says in the one scene the dog Snoopy is killed by an arrow. Um, this inspired a New Yorker editorial by Ian Crouch, which I mean, if your name's Crouch, mm-hmm. that was called "Does Wes Anderson Hate Dogs?" <laughs> oh my gosh, is that the reason why he literally he called a movie "I Love Dogs"? <laughs> was it just a fuck you to know. the New Yorkers, Mister Crouch? And now he made a New well, Yorker movie to apologize for saying "fuck you." <laughs> 
So it says, Crouch said that in the theater when he saw the film, the shot showing the dog impaled and inert elicited a shocked, yelping exhale from many people in the audience. Yeah. And he observed outrage. He observed outrage on Twitter, which is Boo. the most wild way to describe reading Twitter. Boo-hoo. Uh, the Washington Post critic, Sonia Rao, held up Snoopy's death as a prime example of, quote, a particular kind of darkness that lurks in Anderson's filmography, where pets are so often the victims of the writer-director's quirky storytelling, but argued that Anderson's 2018 Isle of Dogs served to remedy this. Mm, yes. Okay, that's a very interesting way of looking at that movie which we will do in two weeks I'm, so i'm glad yes. this has been brought into the conversation <laughs> um to me it's not important but i just i think it's just stakes raising like yes like i i think i think snoopy dies at that moment to just raise the stakes of, of the of the of the whole story right yes is like oh no okay like this adventure that they're on it has it has more than just the stakes of like, you know, they're they're people they, can die. They love each other. They they might get caught. It's like oh, okay, mm -hmm. there's there's bad consequences uh, uh, as like a side effect of this. So yeah, that that brings us there. I also wanted to bring out the other victim of this um, this um, <laughs> attack. Um, which is uh, Lucas Hedges, mm -hmm. um, who I had forgotten was in this movie. Um, he's also in um, Lady Bird. Mm -hmm. It's really funny to see him because I think he might be one of the older kids mm -hmm. um, in the movie. Um, he plays the worst kid. Yeah, he's the worst. But it's funny to see him in this movie, too, because he's like taller than everyone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's probably probably taller than Jason Schwartzman, who is basically eye to eye with most of the kids that he plays against. I actually I wanted to bring this up too because J Jason Schwartzman in this is sort of funny because he is taller than a lot of the kids, and it's like one of the it's it is a really stark difference between the last time we saw him in person, which was in the Darjeeling Limited, where Owen Wilson and Adrian Brody are so tall. Mm -hmm. And now he's like next to these kids. And it's also really funny because he's supposed to be playing somebody who's hypothetically like 18 or 19, mm -hmm. maybe. Okay. Because he's like a he's like a scout leader, right? And he's but a kid's he's not, cousin. He's cousin. And then. he's a kid's cousin. But I will say I I have some cousins who are Quite a bit older than me, so. Oh, all of my cousins. My the cousin closest in age to me is seven years older than I am. I'm not arguing with you, but I I did not read cousin Ben as like eighteen or nineteen. I, I saw him as like a old, um, much as we um, to to invoke our old guest bud uh, Mike Coakley, who mm -hmm. also worked at a day camp of sorts. Yes. Um, into college as a counselor. Mm -hmm. I saw him as not 30, you know, yeah. which is how old I think he actually was in the movie. Right. But like 20, 19, 18. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I, I, I guess I didn't really think about it at all. Like, yeah, I can grow a mustache, so I will. <laughs> <laughs> and how about capers? I, I, I think... Capers. I think this increases the caper count by two. 
I was going to count two. I was going to count the initial escape and then the... Um, rescue mission. Uh, rescue mission. Right. He loves a rescue mission. Yes, a go-for-broke rescue mission, um, which is uh, perhaps a, a an elegant way of mentioning another observation I wanted to make about this movie, which is the uh, beautiful sort of, you can tell it was done deliberately and with precision uh, horse horseshoe shape of like the plot of this movie. Mm. Uh, and uh, Please. It, it, well, it it's like, once again, it's not particularly subtle. It's done in a way that is very clever, but quite in your face. Uh, mm-hmm. When uh, they're on the beach, they when they reach their destination, and Susie is reading to Sam, and mm-hmm. when she when he tells her to go on, there's a close up on her, and she says part two, and then it cuts. Yes, and that is right smack dab in the midpoint of the running time of this movie, um, mm-hmm. and that is the the you know bottom portion of the horseshoe right it it is half you know they're running away and escaping together and Mm -hmm. it is half them being dragged back and trying to escape once again yeah for sure um this is uh, something that uh, uh i always think of because i i took exactly one film course uh, in college. Mm, so did I. And mm-hmm. um, I wonder if we watched any of the same movies. Did you watch it? Did you take like a one-on-one course or do you take like a specific course? I took cult films. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. With our friend Kim, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did see a lot of stuff in that that I feel like I have actually been pretty... Like I saw like Eraserhead and Heathers and... Um, I, that's how I learned about um, the drag queen divine. Mm-hmm. Lots of stuff that I I feel like helped me understand the world a little bit more. Yeah, that rules. Um, that sounds like a really great education. Um, I took uh, during the one summer in which I took any classes, I mm. took like an intro to film course. And uh, one of mm-hmm. the films we watched is... Um, I haven't seen it in a while, but the way that I remember it, I would call it one of my favorite comedies, um, Buster Keaton's The General. Mm. And I, I always think of the the horseshoe uh, sort of plot structure. Um, uh, when I, I, I always, what I'm trying to say is I always remember The General when I, when I think of that. I remember, I remember that lesson from that film class that like, yeah. Uh, everything happens in in one direction, and then all the same stuff happens, but in like reverse order, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and uh, you know, you can sort of say that about this movie, um, just because it's clearly in two parts, and and the division is right in, at the midpoint. Can we? So we've talked. I've talked a lot about the kids. Yep. Um. I do want to talk about. I. We don't always talk about our favorite piece of dialogue. Ah, uh, yeah. Favorite lines. Um, but I think that my favorite line in this movie is my favorite set. My favorite set of dialogue that isn't that that is like because I think maybe the letter writing is maybe mm-hmm. dialogue, but not really. But th- my favorite like sort of interaction is right before they are really just totally free 
in the cove. Mm-hmm. And she is talking about her books, Susie is, and she says how she always wished she was an orphan mm-hmm. because she thinks that they're more special. Yeah. All the heroes in her books are orphans. Right. And there's this look from Sam where he's clearly disgusted, but also knows that she is not meaning what she's saying in the way right. that it sounds. He's hurt, but he knows that she doesn't mean to be hurtful. Yes. And he says, in this perfect delivery, yeah. I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. Which is in and of itself. This is like one of those Wes Anderson things where like, that's what you think the line is, right? right? And then she softens and says, I love you too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's perfectly written and perfectly performed. Yeah. That is, that's a very special moment. Oh, and one more thing about them, and then I'll, I'm going to transition, which is that there's something that happens in this movie, which I feel like he just couldn't avoid because of the children, but I think that it works really, really well, which is that occasionally these children just do genuinely laugh and smile at mm. one another. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking very specifically of when he's saying, I think we should take the trip in two days because... Um, you're a less experienced hiker and you're wearing Sunday shoes. And she goes, well, these aren't exactly Sunday shoes. And he hands her the, he's like, I got you flowers. And she's like, oh, thank you. And she smiles and it's like her whole face lights up. And I feel like when I'm speaking about Wes Anderson specifically, like we talk about the deadpan a lot, which is something we love and the directness of it. Um, And I feel like this is one of those moments where these kids are being deadpan because they're lifting themselves up to try to get adults to take them seriously. Right. And it's only with each other that we get to see them really experience joy. Right. Um, yeah, that's another great moment to call out because it is very important because it is like we in the in the context of that scene, that scene is sort of intermingled with flashback, right? And mm-hmm. and we we are being introduced really interesting how this movie like for a little while in the beginning like withholds um sam from us yeah um so that he gets this like hero introduction when we see him in the canoe but before that we get the narrator and we get the sort of scene setting of the uh, bishop family home and then Mm -hmm. for like i don't know how long maybe five minutes uh Edward Norton is like the main character of this movie. It's like it's a because it's it, it's our side scrolling heaven. It's about yeah. a troop leader who lost a camper, um, yeah. and then it's not until a little ways in that we actually get to see Sam, um, mm-hmm. and it it helps build up like the mythology of him that we like heard about him before we actually saw him, and and what he's like. And then they meet in the meadow, and we get the flashback to how they met. And how they hatch this plan. And um, we're going to see what they're actually like together. And that moment when when she is lit up by receiving the flowers, it's like not a split second goes by and like he's offering her beef jerky, right? And, yes. and then they're on their way, right? It, it's yeah. it, it, like, like a lot of Wes Anderson dialogue sometimes, it goes, you know, very quickly. And it's sort of, it's sort of funny how quickly they go through these beats, right? 
Um, but yeah, that's such an important moment because it's like if it weren't for the flowers and the smile, it, there would be no like romance in what they're doing, except for the fact that like in the romance in the sense of like they're on an adventure, they're, like they're running yes. away together. But like it's surrounded by like, yes, like the hiking comment and the beef jerky. They're looking at a map, you know. I think he asked her, do you know how to read a map? And she says, yes. Yeah, and she's and, like, yeah. yeah. I also I also think the beef jerky, I'm glad you brought up the beef jerky. I like the beef jerky moment because when she, he's like, do you want some beef jerky? She's She sort of is like, yeah. And the way that she responds, it just feels to me like she's like, oh, yeah, this this guy knows what he's doing. He's already provided me with provisions. She's impressed. Like, um, yeah. The other thing I want to talk about, uh, so um, there, there's a kind of competing thing. We've already sort of talked about this somewhat, but there's a competing thing. Maybe they're not competing. Maybe they're complementary in a way that doesn't seem obvious. But um, yeah. Wes Anderson stuff is so uh, meticulous um, to the point that the, the worlds, the settings – they seem contrived, right? They, they're that mm-hmm. they're so meticulously designed. However, he talks a lot in interviews about when he talks about dialogue and performances. He uses the phrase almost like a documentary quite a lot. Mm-hmm. He he's talking about like actually wanting the characters and what they say and how they behave to be naturalistic and to seem Mm -hmm. real and not contrived and not like, you know. So um, uh, why did I bring up this contradiction? Oh, right. Okay. The way that Sam talks, um, he's uh, obviously uh, this expert camper and um, he's sort of, you know, showing off all of his knowledge. Um, Mm -hmm. And like the you know, and so he has his tricks and and you know the sucking on a pebble when you're thirsty or whatever you know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also he he sometimes says things that aren't related to being a scout or the wilderness or anything. Um, for example, he says like poems don't always have to rhyme. You know, they're just supposed to be creative, yeah. and yeah. Um, it's never. It's it's never explicitly explained, but it's very clear to me that he's doing this thing that I know that I have been guilty of, that kids do, that mm-hmm. when they learn something, then they sort of repeat it in a, yes. in a kind of know-it-all kind of a way. Yes. Even Elliot does this as a four-year-old. Right. Yes. Where like you can tell when he's when he's saying something that like he must be repeating and like it had to be taught to him. Mm-hmm. And now he's like, oh, okay, that was something that I had to learn. Therefore, not everybody knows this. Therefore, <laughs> I'm going to repeat it in this way. Where like, by the way, and, and did you know, like I know, did you like that, that poems don't have to rhyme mm-hmm. or that like you can suck on a pebble. Um, and and um, it, it's it's very it's very clear and it's very authentic and it's very natural uh, and it's very familiar. And and uh, I, I, I think it's it's very uh, uh, intelligently done, both on a yeah. writing level and a performance level. Yes. 
Um, just one thing I want to say, uh, uh, bring up before I forget it, just be, uh, because uh, I was I was pointing out things that are not subtle, and and most mm -hmm. of all, it's not subtle when she says part two and then it cuts, and and mm -hmm. it's part two of the movie. The other thing that is not subtle, but it's it's good, it's good, um, is um, is the bath scene. And the and the the yes. uh, and the bath scene ends with uh, uh, Francis McDormand kind of t fingering uh, one of the earrings, mm -hmm. and she says, "Do you remember what she says?" How are we going to get these out of your ears? These fish hooks out fish of your hooks, ears. Yes, specifically. Yeah. Yes. How are we going to get? Because they're fish hooks. Right. How are we going to get these fish hooks out? Which is like that is so on the nose like as a metaphor for for like he put he literally put his hooks in her oh yes uh -huh. <laughs> and the and yes. the mom who doesn't want them to be together is like how are we ever <laughs> going to get these fish hooks out can i tell you i never noticed that because in my mind i literally because this is how my brain works i was like well, I think if you get some wire cutters, you should be able to cut the hook part off and then get them out pretty cleanly. Mm -hmm. Now, the infection risk is still an issue. Like, that's truly every time I hear that risk, every time I hear that line, I start problem solving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. that, make, that, that That's one of my masculine tendis, tendencies. Yeah. For you, that, that makes sense. <laughs> um, I also, I mean, to talk about that bath scene really quickly i love you know and and the directness of wes anderson when she says i hate you and she says you're just saying that to hurt me and she's like yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah fuck you i am yeah or like another good moment of dialogue in that same vein is when one of her brothers says you're a traitor to our family and she says i want to be yeah <laughs> when they're on the boat yeah and by the just by the way i don't have anything uh smart to offer about this scene i just just a, a moment of appreciation maybe this is you mentioned your favorite dialogue maybe this is my favorite dialogue um when they're on the boat and it cuts to below deck and it's yes. sam sitting across from scoutmaster ward and mm -hmm. and scoutmaster ward is just sort of like he's just been it's great it, edward norton is great the writing is great the character is great He's just been brought down farther and farther than he thought he could go. He's just like first, it, first he lost a camper. Now yeah. it's like bad that they found the camper, and he like knows what's <laughs> going to happen next. And he, he yeah, you, and he must feel enormous guilt, and you can tell that he does. Mm -hmm. And 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 all all he can and he says to him. Uh, what does he say exactly? It's it's my favorite. I wish we could have done a spot check back right. on the beach there. Yes. Right, exactly. I would have given you a commendable. That was one of the best <laughs> uh, pitch tent camps I've ever seen. And and Sam is like Sam is crying, and he looks up yeah. enough to say thank you. <laughs> yeah, I love. That's part of the reason I love Ed Norton. So this is a really actually great um, segue into the other thing I wanted to talk about with. Um, this which is the adults and the way the adults what they're dealing with because it does feel sort of like parallel tracks yeah. and that the intersection is when they are 
when they finally meet when they find each other, right? right? So, like, the children and the adults meet only when they actually run into one another because they're looking for each other or whatever. Right. But I think that this um, does a lot of good things with asking questions and showing about how family is created and and broken Mm -hmm. also. So, um, like, Ed Norton specifically in that scene, part of the reason you know he's trying so hard is because in sort of a – not a throwaway line, but, like, a sort of, like, very emblematic Wes Anderson line earlier um, when they're going out to search for for Sam – one of the scout leaders asks what his real job is yeah. and he says that he's a math teacher and then he says i take that I'm back i'm a scout answer. leader first yeah my this is my real job i'm yeah. a math teacher math on teacher the is side. what i do on the side yeah. yeah and um the same is true with like the adults right the adults are all um like wandering through like ed norton is dating the switchboard operator or he will which is it's very subtle. Yeah. yeah. He's got like a picture of her on his desk at one point. Later um, he does. At the end he does. Yeah. But it's Before like he had a like... picture of Harvey Keitel. Yes. Right. Yes. Who he was not um, dating, I assume. You know, Bruce Willis is um, having an affair with Francis McDormand. Bill Murray's just in a sad sack mode. Right. Pretty heavily. Um, but But also... They want to really just take care of each other is the thing. Yeah. Even though they're sometimes hurting each other, really all of those characters are trying to figure out the best way to take care of each other, Um, which is part of the reason why that foster family feels so particularly cold Mm -hmm. um, and why they're so horrified. Um, And even social services, right, who's this antagonist until the moment she's not. Mm-hmm. When she's like, well, we, we heard there was an assault. And Bruce Willis and Ed Norton, this is actually maybe the funniest line. Is it was when the they girl. Go, that was the girl. Yes. it's beca- Yeah. It, the way they say it simultaneously. <laughs> and they both just perfectly have like, they're perfectly in the same mode at the same pitch yes. with the same yeah. like level of enthusiasm. <laughs> yes. that That is a great, great moment. That's the funniest line in the film. Yeah, and so I love and, – and also I think it's worth noting because I feel like this gets buried sometimes, but, like, both of her parents are lawyers. Yes. So in some ways, like, she and Sam are exact opposites. Like, not mm. only does she have a really established large family, but she's got a family of means and education. Yeah, that's true. That also turns out to be, like, a plot thing. Like, it turns out in the end, like, oh, they were they were written to be lawyers all along so that they could – quickly negotiate the terms of uh a legitimate adoption uh offer i mean i think it's i think it just adds another layer to the idea that her family is established right right? yes yeah um like the fact that they can even be lawyers on this remote island Mm -hmm. like clearly they have the means to go wherever they need to go to actually go to court or whatever right um and so by the end, everybody sort of found their own groove, right? Mm-hmm. So, again, Susie's wearing yellow. She finally fits into her family. Um, but they're still sneaking around, right? So now instead of Bruce Willis sneaking hilariously by the house, mm-hmm. um, it's now him sneaking hilariously by the house to pick up Sam. Yeah. Who's doing his painting mm-hmm. in the house. Yeah. Um, and... It feels I some in some ways it feels more resolved 
than any other Wes Anderson movie mm. to me. Um, I don't want to say everybody ends up happy, but everyone seems to have found a place of comfort by the end. Yes. Can I? Uh, okay. I wasn't going to bring this up, but. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I, I was in the middle of watching some interviews when we started our call and it just so happens that like the last bit of information I learned was I saw back to back interviews with Wes Anderson and Edward Norton. And it's this it's uh-huh. the same video and it's the same interviewer. And basically the interviewer hears something from Wes and then you see him ask Edward Norton about it. And mm-hmm. And what he learns from Wes is that something that Wes Anderson and Edward Norton discussed about the character, which see, it seems to, Hey, I'm not in this business. Uh, what do I know? It seems to me that this fact would be irrelevant to the making of this movie. How, however, (laughs) they discussed the fact that it is very likely that a couple of years after the events of the movie, um, Edward Norton's character would be in Vietnam. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I agree. It's a very neat, happy ending. Um, I think un- for the moment, in the moment yes, they found right. comfort, right? Because mm-hmm. we also know that Sam Sam and, and Susie are not going to be in love for the rest of their lives, more likely than not. Mm-hmm. But in the moments that they need each other, they have each other. Yeah. The tent. Mm-hmm. Wes Anderson loves to have a hole in something. Sure. Yeah. Well. Yes. We've seen. Uh, we've seen it with like the the vault, the safe yes. in the Life Aquatic, and there was another time that it showed up that I can't think of now. Yes. Also, it has to be said, by the way, that that is no doubt a reference to the Shawshank Redemption. Yes. <laughs> and also, I pointed out to Dana that um, the moment where. Uh, the uh, paper mache dummy is in Susie's bed. You can't you yes. can't do that without that being a reference to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So so yeah. th- he's just sort of collecting references to some of the best like movies about escapes. You know, mo- movies about yeah. you know breaking out and playing hooky or or you know. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the decoy, which is just yeah, I would scream too if I was a kid. And it's very funny. <laughs> like the proportions are so bad. Very funny visual. Um, it's I think it's also really really funny. Um, Bruce Willis is really funny when Bill Murray when they're talking to each other outside of the window. Bill Murray and Francis McDormand with the they're like yelling at each other, and then Bruce Willis is there suddenly, and he's like, "Why are you here?" And he's like, "Ugh." <laughs> That part always makes me laugh and I think is really great acting from Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. I think it's hilarious. I mean, I think this is one of those things that like is there to remind you very, very um, sharply that they're still children um, and that we can't elevate the children too high, mm-hmm. which is that Susie doesn't pack any clothes. Mm-hmm. Like the reveal that she opens her suitcase and it's just books yeah. is like a reveal, right? You assume that it's going to be full of clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no dynamite in this movie, but we sure do have a lot of explosions for the hullabaloo. Oh, yes. And I also think it's worth mentioning that, um, we get stop frame animation. Yes. In the maps. Mm -hmm. So we still retain that in this tiny bit. And, and I'm, 
I don't know if you saw this, but I am curious. There is some, like, puppetry-type feeling for the shot of when they, the lightning hits the church tower and they're all dangling yes. there. There's so, yes, I don't, the church, there's, like, some, like, silhouetting, which yeah. I don't know how they did it, but it feels like some sort of animation. Um, mm -hmm. Similar, also, uh, there's a shot where a dam breaks, I yes. don't know how they did that, but it looks like a miniature um, and mm -hmm. and maybe there was some stop motion in that shot. Um, and then also, um, I don't know if this is relevant to animation exactly, but the the part where Edward Norton rescues Harvey Keitel mm -hmm. and he jumps to get him and then he jumps back with him on his back. And there's a fireball that comes out of the tent right behind it's them. It's like very clearly like it's very fake looking, and that's that's yes. clearly by design, intentional. Yes, like yeah. it's it's not it's not the best that they could do. It's it's the the version of it that they wanted for the you mm -hmm. know fantasy of of the of the type of movie, the story, blah blah blah. My last two notes, which. Um, my favorite scene with the adults is when they're all in the church mm -hmm. and that like back and forth. And then it like culminates with Tilda Swinton getting out a notepad and then Bruce Willis gets out a notepad. Yes. Um, with the kids, it's them dancing on the beach, right. which is also my favorite needle drop. Mm -hmm. Le Thème de l'Amour yes. by Francois Hardy. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, those are all my notes. So We're I'm done. Yeah. End scene. Just a rapid fire, a couple of rapid fire things. Um, I think the the music is great. the The use of the records, the use of the the Benjamin Britten, um, uh, and uh, the whole you know uh, or orchestra, you know, record for children thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I love the way that they recreate that for the original score um, uh, mm -hmm. over the credits of the film. Um, I think perhaps uh, this this movie has the best credits of any Wes Anderson movie. The end, mm -hmm. the end credits um, are just enjoyable to watch for that reason and others. Um, uh, another way of uh, talking about this movie that I wanted to bring up is um, as as much as I love this movie, I was thinking about when I saw it and uh, when I could have seen it. And the observation that I wanted to make was that, um, you know, I can't say this with complete confidence, but I think perhaps mm -hmm. not only would I love this movie, but this would be like one of my all time favorite movies had I been born right about 10 years later than I was. Yeah, because this movie, like if you were the same age of these right. kids. Yes, because this movie came out in 2012, yes. and I was born in 1990. If I were born around 2000, and I saw this in my adolescence, then this might be, you know, like a formative text. Uh, yeah, it absolutely would have been. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. Uh, so okay, so there's one other thing that I wanted to bring up. That uh, there's one other thing I want to bring up too. Well, I. I sort of have mul I first. sort of have multiple things, but I but I, <laughs> I, I I I I can't I can't um, uh, let this one go. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, as a, a new 
take that I developed uh, rewatching this movie. And and to set the context for it, um, I have to bring up something that I never want to bring up, uh, which is Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah. Um, but I'm assuming you've seen and I'm assuming you remember and it will kind of derail this conversation if if you don't. Um, Ed Norton's yes. on Saturday Night in, Live. Yes, in, I was not going to bring this up because I know that you think I'm a, a slovenly fool for enjoying that program. And and that's that's <laughs> your words, not mine. Um, in 2013, uh, Edward Norton hosted Saturday Night Live. And uh, part of the program was a, a pre-taped piece, which is a uh, trailer for uh, what if Wes Anderson made a horror movie and mm-hmm. Edward Norton plays uh, Owen Wilson. Um, and uh, I re- Dana and I rewatched it uh, last night and mm-hmm. um, I, I wanted to never talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason I'm bringing it up now is because mm-hmm. I couldn't help but rewatch it and sort of think about it in the context of this movie, not only because, you know, they're close in time, right? Moonrise Kingdom mm-hmm. was the most recent Wes Anderson movie when that when they did that on SNL. Yeah. But watching the watching Moonrise Kingdom, look. I'm not such a ridiculous person that I that I am going to make a claim like Moonrise Kingdom is a horror movie. That's that's yeah. not my take. However, yes. uh, of any Wes Anderson movie we've watched so far, Moonrise mm-hmm. Kingdom has the most in its language um that that seems like it could be in a horror movie mm-hmm. in terms of the shots the visuals the story and the sounds that you hear there are some mm-hmm. parts of the score which i think are are really kind of haunting and could easily score like a creepy scene in a horror movie there are parts of the mm-hmm. music that just sound sort of like a and i'm Maybe I'm just sort of biased because it's the end of October and I'm watching it in that context, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where I've been consuming some more horror. But um, it sounded creepy. And then also there there are some shots like like the kids' animal costumes and when they're like yes. hiding on the church balcony and it like mm-hmm. snap zooms in on the, on the kids in their animal costumes in the balcony, like that looks like a horror movie um mm-hmm. when also in the church I, it gets more and more like this you know the more the storm builds and it gets to the climax but also mm-hmm. in the church when bruce willis is wielding like one of the kids weapons right it's like a yeah. it's like a big <laughs> stick with like nails uh nails yeah, uh, in nailed it. it into it um like that is like a horror movie image like all mm-hmm. the stuff with like you know they're on top of the bell tower, you know, uh, and they might jump and they might die. Um, and the way that that is shot. So it's like completely blue. Um, mm-hmm. you could easily do like an edit where like you made like the funny, like 
horror movie trailer for Moonrise Kingdom just using mm-hmm. stuff that is in the movie. And mm-hmm. and my 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 point in invoking the SNL thing is that I think that 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 only serves to make the SNL sketch s- appear worse than it already is <laughs> because because they're just they're just late to the party mm-hmm. it's like he he already like dabbled in horror filmmaking in in my opinion mm-hmm. by making that particular movie and so that SNL sketch is just like in the shadow of Moonrise Kingdom it has a lot mm-hmm. of Moonrise Kingdom references and then also um, mostly Royal Tenenbaums references, which I guess makes sense because mm-hmm. that's sort of like his most popular thing that he ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's very unfunny. There's one funny thing about it, which is which is Edward Norton's uh, Owen Wilson uh, impression. Edward Norton's Owen Wilson is very very funny. That, it's that yeah. makes me laugh. The rest of it is like most things on SNL. And I think this is like sort of by design. Like it's Mm -hmm. the thing of SNL is it is live and they Mm -hmm. had a week to make it. Right. Yes. And so most of the stuff that they air kind of ends up feeling like a first draft execution of, of, Mm -hmm. of a premise. And that's mm-hmm. what this is because it's basically there are very rather than jokes or like a take, it is just a, a an artful recreation of a lot of things that you recognize from Wes Anderson movies. Like mm-hmm. they they look just alike, and and it's like a semblance of comedy because it's like ah you recognize this ah. This is a comedy show. You recognize this, but it's like that's that's the beginning and the end of it. And it's and it's also it's it's less funny because they have the means to do like a pretty good version of it. Like I like I looked this mm-hmm. up on YouTube, and the top comment on YouTube is somebody saying, "Wow, I can't believe how much you made this look like Wes Anderson. Whoever you know designed this and edited it." Uh, deserves a lot of credit for that. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's not that's not funny. It's not the funny version of it. It's it's just um a, 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 like a a a faithful uh simulacrum. And mm-hmm. and because it's SNL and because they have the means to like uh they have the means to have the production value. To mm-hmm. have a parody of Wes Anderson that actually looks like stuff that Wes Anderson did, rather than like somebody else who would have to make like the the arts and crafts homemade version of it, that might actually be a lot funnier. Mm-hmm. It's like um, I always think of uh, Bob Odenkirk worked on SNL, and he has this quote about Saturday Night Live. Um, he said something like you you film sketch comedy and you can't expect it to be very funny unless when somebody slams a door the whole wall shakes mm. and his whole point was like SNL is like on a scale 
where like they have the production value to like, you know, it's not, it's, it's in the system, you know, it's, it's in the Mm -hmm. system where the wall won't shake when you slam the door. But really, I just wanted to say, I think there's some like horror movie adjacent stuff in, in Moonrise Kingdom. And that was my new observation. Yeah. Yeah, there definitely is. And I feel like that also is um, like an interesting note on the time, which is that so much horror stuff now is having to be reinvented in part because we just have like cell phones. Mm -hmm. And so like so many of the things that are scary about this end up being spooky, let's say, Mm -hmm. because it's in 1965 specifically. Right. I wanted to talk about the fact that it's called Moonrise Kingdom, which is a perfect place to end. Sure. So this is one of those things that you can sort of, again, like blink and miss it. Yeah. But when they're on the beach in the cove, um, she says, this is called, this place has a terrible name. He's painting her. Mm -hmm. And she's like in her underwear with the cat, which also, I can't believe we haven't brought up the fact that she brings a fucking kitten. Mm -hmm. And he's like, is that a cat? And she's like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um. And it's like got a, it's like TD 35.1 or something like that is the name of the cove. Mm-hmm. And she says, we should rename it. And this doesn't, doesn't come up. That's almost exact, as you said, basically the exact midpoint of the movie. Yeah. When that's said. Right. And then the last shot of the movie. They actually it, like cut away from that scene in the middle of that conversation. So yes. you, in hindsight, when you're rewatching it, you can, you can surmise oh okay that conversation continued and they came up with the name moonrise kingdom we we just didn't see it yeah so the way the movie ends Susie watches them leave with her binoculars she's wearing the earrings by the way yeah she walks to the edge of that door frame looks over at the painting that sam's been working on for a moment before going to rejoin her family right And then the camera does a very Wes Anderson pan down Mm -hmm. to a painting of the cove, which has been destroyed is the other thing. Yeah. The cove was destroyed in the storm. That was the, that was the thing I was going to point out that I missed in past viewings that I picked up on, on this viewing. Cause the, the narrator just gives you like so much information that I think I was just, you know, in past viewings just swept up in the ending of the movie that I didn't take in every piece of information. And I I had always just sort of missed that the cove was destroyed in the storm and the flood. And Which I is, just, you know, like a metaphor. Right, yes. And I just <laughs> just just got it this time. Um and it's it's the cove and it says mm-hmm. Moonrise Kingdom out on stones and right. then it fades to a picture of the to an actual shot of the 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 cove. Yeah. Where Moonrise King, it's the tent and the 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 pitch, and yes. it says Moonrise Kingdom in in stones, and then it's dedicated to his wife. The yep. movie's dedicated to his wife. That's right. Um, and I, I think that's a really um, beautiful way that they did that. Yeah. And that that's all I wanted to say about that. Yeah, it's a great ending. It's a great title. It's a great sort of withholding. Uh, the explanation of the the title. Mm-hmm. It's a great uh, uh, denouement for for the film. Yeah. I hope I'm using that correctly. <laughs> um. So yeah, that's that's our kingdom, Will. 
Well done. Well done. No. <laughs> Next week, the Grand Budapest Hotel. And finally, we get to realize the pink that I keep bringing mm, up since yes. Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> can finally hear about this pink for the, the appropriate and perhaps final time. <laughs> um, I'll see you next week, Will. Love you. Love you, bye. Bye. Will is on Twitter and Letterboxd at youngest of one, and his website is williamhoffacker.com. You can find Liz at exclamate on Instagram at exclamate underscore on Twitter or on her website, elizabethdeannamorrislakes.com. Our website is smugbuds.com and the podcast is at smugbuds on Twitter and Instagram. 